Hello, hello. Welcome to episode one of Mostly Harmless. I am your host, spirit guide, Svengali, Ben Beish. And this is going to be a bit of an experiment. I think a lot of shows start off as experiments. So let's see how it goes. Let's see if you guys like it. See if I get some interesting feedback and uh, see if I know what I'm doing, even the slightest. Um, the show is going to have four parts, typically. Today, we'll only have three because I haven't gotten a guest for episode one, although I've got a few interesting folks lined up for future shows. But we'll start with the rundown, typically, and that's going to be just a quick take and summary of news in tech that touches on major through lines, major themes, so conversational commerce, AR, voice, serverless, customer experience, whatever it might be. Today, we'll cover SnapKit, Apple opening up NFC, Walmart's Jet Black shopping service by text message, and some new updates to skill discovery in Alexa. Next, we'll start with the ramble. The ramble will be a sort of a deep dive into a certain topic or hypothesis, more nuanced, much deeper than the headlines, probably a blog post that I'm too lazy to finish writing or something to that effect. And uh, it will have a theme, it will have a point, but I warned you, it's the ramble, so it may be a bit meandering. So, And then we'll end today with the rant, which will just be me gr- telling about what grinds my gears, something that is annoying me, something that's bothering me, or something that is worth maybe making fun of or poking fun at. Today, we'll talk about all the whining related to GDPR from the tech folks. So let's start with the rundown. Uh, Snapkit. So Snapkit is, I think Josh Constein at TechCrunch first reported this. Snapkit is apparently going to be Snapchat's entry into the mobile SDK world in terms of third-party apps. So they'll be offering identity in the form of login with Snapchat and Bitmoji as your sort of digital avatar and representation, as well as some amount of the Snapchat camera being embedded in applications. And I do have some questions as to exactly what that's going to mean. But I think starting with the identity piece, identity in the mobile era has been an interesting one because I think Apple particularly has abdicated its responsibility as the platform owner to really facilitate a private, secure, and unified identity system. iMessage, iCloud, MobileMe. I mean, they've got iTunes. They've got all these different logins and keychain access and all this other crap and the complexity and the the bugginess and everything about that has essentially and I think you know the friction first and foremost of logging into things and and Apple not solving for that has really pushed everyone into Facebook Connect's arms and so it's interesting that Snapchat this late in the game with Facebook having such a dominant position in app login and app identity it's interesting that Snapchat finds this still a useful and interesting place to explore. And obviously their, their huge edge here, besides the fact that the, they may have users that don't necessarily have Facebook accounts. And so there's an untapped market. There's not many login with Instagrams, for example, in your standard utility apps, things like that. But also obviously the Bitmoji aspect and the digital representation of the self I think that that's going to be a really important piece of it. And I think that it's interesting to think about where where your Bitmoji can go outside of Snapchat and what else it can do for you in terms of expressing yourself and in terms of being you online. 
the more interesting part to me, I think, ultimately, is this embedded camera concept. And exactly what this is going to mean is not super clear from Josh's article, but ostensibly, the obvious thing is that the Snapchat embedded camera will allow sharing of some kind of content from an application into Snapchat and through the Snapchat graph. I think we may be seeing this with Spotify and music sharing, and that's always felt natural to me. I call it conversational content, and I think Snapchat has always, ever since they added the the ability to sense and share a Shazam song, I've felt that sharing different types of content with friends is a really big part of communicating and a really big part of really what the Snapchat vision is, and bringing in third parties into that makes a ton of sense to me. So songs or maps, places, um, there's a lot of possibilities. Articles, I could see Pinterest doing something like this and partnering up. But probably the more interesting piece of this ultimately is going to be, does the Snapchat camera have other functionality that the app developer can take advantage of? I know recently that Modiface was an AR SDK company for like beauty brands doing essentially like out of the box kind of white label solution for makeup application on your face in AR. It was acquired, I think, by L'Oreal. So there's now competitive issues with all the brands that were using Modiface. And so you could see Snapchat having a value proposition for fashion retailers and beauty brands and basically anyone else that wants to implement AR. They don't have the tooling. They don't have the expertise. They don't have the sort of built-in viral graph and use case of sharing something with your friends. And so using potentially a version of Lens Studio, could they use the Snapchat camera to essentially be their AR portal inside of their applications? And the relationship between the embedded experience in these apps and let's say the lenses created for Nike or whatever it might be inside of Snapchat's app is going to be interesting to track. And so it definitely raises the questions as to like, what does the Snapchat developer platform or developer developer ecosystem look like now and in the future? Because I think Ben Thompson has been talking a lot about in the past few weeks, the difference between a platform and an aggregator and how a platform is really an ecosystem of where the third parties capture most of the value Whereas a uh, an aggregator is more about pulling all the users into one choke point and holding their attention and having third parties be sort of incidental and not core to the, the way the customers experience the app. And I think that I think that I think that there's a there's a interesting case to be made that Snapchat has has characteristics of an aggregator for the time being. Obviously, it's an advertising business for now, but the the graph and what they've focused on, these intimate communications, these exploring the world and AR tools, um, their new context cards that pop up on Snap Maps, it's beginning to look, I think, more like Snapchat is setting up the building blocks for a real AR platform. And rather than, let's say, uh, an attention-based or a feed-based aggregator like Facebook or Instagram. And I think that's part of why the camera being opened by Snapchat first and that having always been the, the home screen and what, what Snapchat has been all about, it really informs what this platform play or this, this developer toolkit at least play is for Snapchat where 
the camera is what goes everywhere with you. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see if Snapchat can have a, a full journey throughout their third-party application presence into Snapchat and back again, and how that looks in terms of now on mobile, but giving us a bit of a hint as to what's going to happen next when we have glasses and and when we sort of make that leap in, you know, four or five years. So Snapkit, very interesting to me, um, obviously, as a big Snapchat fan and follower. And um, I'm very interested to see exactly what kind of capabilities developers are going to have access to with regard to the Snap camera in their apps. So next up, we've got Apple opening up NFC beyond just payments. So this has been something that I think has been talked about ever since Apple Pay and NFC chips were included in, in iPhone. And I think the, there's very obvious use cases for using NFC in other, you know, in, in use cases other than payments or other than strict payments. You've got getting into a hotel, getting into a gym, getting into your office, going to, you know, through mass transit, somewhat of a payment use case, but kind of indirect. Um, but then I think there's some interesting non-obvious use cases as well. So physical anchors in the digital world. Museum is kind of like the easy one where, hey, I walk by a piece of artwork and an NFC tag helps me get some more context and information about it. I'd be interested to see, especially as NFC sensors and NFC chip sort of beacons, I guess you would call them. I don't know exactly what the term is. Get cheaper and people can include them in bottles or packaging, retail packaging or in stores how that helps maybe kickstart the AR experiences Apple is able to provide for app developers without necessarily having the full-blown indoor mapping crazy future of, of AR that surely is coming but may take some time. So I think this is actually going to be an interesting bridge to that. But obviously, I think, as I was kind of mentioning earlier about Apple abdicating identity on iOS, I think that NFC potentially solves identity in a in a federated, decentralized from an app developer perspective. So you're they're just sort of a dumb pass through, and they're they're you have an identity with the you know the MTA in New York, and you have your your identity with uh, Macy's in in store, and so that's how it's handled. But I do think that if Apple really wants to do things like government ID and passport and, and some of these more official things, really getting their identity act together is going to be important. So I'm very interested to see. I think a lot of developers are interested to see what they can do with a new open core NFC. And uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So then we've got Walmart Jet Black, which is a new service announced by Walmart where in I think it's starting in New York. People will be able to shop via text message with a sort of a personal assistant and they'll pay $50 a month and be able to not only get people to shop or the, these assistants to shop at Walmart or from jet.com, but also, which I, th I thought was really interesting was shopping from third parties as well. And so getting flowers from somewhere or basically being a bit of the, the personal assistant. I think some of these Butler type text apps had, had done a few years ago, but obviously with the the centerpiece being the Walmart and, and Jet sort of inventory and, and catalog. And I, I've always, I've, I've worked in conversational interfaces and conversational commerce. And I think this is where a lot of this stuff is going, that personal touch, 
the ability to navigate a giant catalog with either a an, a bot or a human helping you do that in a very conversational, natural way is going to become more important. And I think it's going to start with that human relationship. So that's one of my questions about this is going to be, is the, the core value proposition of this service going to be about the convenience, which is what I've seen a lot in the, in the language from the articles written about it. It's about for busy moms, et cetera. And I do think there is a, a big convenience component to having a, a sort of a personal assistant, but that doesn't seem to me to be, I think if you're, you're fighting Amazon in a game of convenience, you're, you're going to lose. So the more interesting part, which was mentioned in passing in the reporting on this was recommendations and curation and helping you decide what to buy. And that's where I think that Amazon really falls down discovery, uh, brand, um, being able to really understand a customer's needs explicitly as opposed to implicitly. So explicitly as in terms of what they're telling you they want and interpreting that versus implicitly of right now you've got, you've got sort of machine learning and recommendations based on what you've done in the past, but there's not so much of that guided shopping kind of in-store concierge experience that I think, I think that's really where brands are going to have a leg up on, on Amazon, at least for now. Um, obviously Alexa is not going to be able to do that kind of personal touch when it comes to clothes shopping or any of these highly considered purchases, uh, at least for now. So we'll see. I think it's a, a great move by, by Walmart who I think it's probably the most interesting move they've made outside of these acquisitions because it really is leaning into their strengths and could potentially be a way for them to, with the third-party services become less about just Amazon or third-party rent vendors and retailers, et cetera, uh, less about, sorry, less about Walmart itself and more about a service in and of itself that has value and people go to regardless of whether they're shopping from Walmart. And I think the data and being able to um, have that full order and have that full customer relationship and what uh, Don Peppers calls share of customer I think is going to be really interesting play for, for Walmart. Um, next up, we've got Alexa's can fulfill intent update. So this is a new capability for skills to essentially explicitly state what types of requests they're able to fulfill, which helps with this. I think on the surface, it helps with obviously skill discovery. So if, people don't know about a skill yet that can do something like check a sports score or make a table reservation, Alexa can, even without having a ton of intelligence about it, the developers can signal what types of requests they're able to handle and Alexa can make a decision as to which one to select to fulfill that request. I think that the the, the thing here that, that I think is important to remember though is that customers don't have a discovery problem. Users don't have an app discovery problem and users of voice don't have a, a skill discovery problem. They just have a job to be done in their life at any given moment. And they have certain tools and services at their disposal to get that job done. I think this is m less about discovery and more about kind of melting away the friction in between a, someone expressing their intent, i.e. what job they have to be done in the moment and fulfilling it. So the intent is really, in my mind, jobs to be done made flesh. 
And this is really where even, even Alexa being having very minimal editorial and very minimal intelligence around mitigating or around sort of negotiating between skills and understanding which one versus the other needs to be picked. Even just giving developers the ability to do this is a huge step forward in terms of customers being able to just, it just works. It just, you just ask for what you want and the system can help you get what you, what, what, what you need. And I think Alexa, that's really what Alexa is. If Alexa is going to become a platform and I'm still skeptical in the long run that that's where it's going. I think it may actually be more about Amazon.com than anything else. Being able to route and mediate between skills and help the customer just get done what they need to get done is going to be very important. I think it's, um, it's a, I think Google's implicit invocation with their assistant already has this functionality. And so we'll see if Amazon is able to get a bit more usage out of their skills base where customers are able to take more advantage of that catalog because the number of skills that are used on a daily basis relative to the number that are in the Alexa skill store is is infinitesimally small. And so uh, this seems like a, a very good step towards doing that and making that easier. But I think, and this is going to lead into the ramble on uh, on Siri, this is something that Apple absolutely needs to own. They really do need to take very close notes on what both Alexa and Google Assistant are doing on this job or this intent fulfillment routing and discovery route because that's ultimately where the intimate personal assistant is going to add the most value. The Google approach, I think, is Google Assistant is the smartest bot in the room and does everything magically. Alexa is somewhere in the middle in terms of it has a skill store, but really the star is still Alexa itself. I think Siri and Apple, what they need to do is go in the complete opposite direction and really just become a platform where Siri does the routing, does the core interface and draws the UI, speaks back to the customer, uh, takes the request and passes it back to the, to the developer. But I think it needs to get out of trying to be intelligent uh, and limiting what customers can do based on its own intelligence. So I like to call what Siri needs to be become, and I'm hoping that, that at WWDC this week we see at least inklings of this, is really Siri OS, a full-on voice and, and multimodal digital assistant operating system, which is somewhat what Siri started as. Siri was really the original Siri demos had a few third-party integrations that were really incredible. I think Yelp may, may have been one of them. And that's all been kind of pared back over the history of Siri. And Siri has been really not given much of a, a chance to be anything more than an appendage to the operating system. And I think that inside of Apple, I'm hoping that folks are going to wake up to the fact that what really makes a voice assistant or a digital assistant really good is not how smart it necessarily is in and of itself, but the types of services that it can essentially give the user access to. And at the end of the day, it's just about getting a task done. Apple already has an ecosystem of app developers, of service providers that are 
among the most lucrative it's it's among the most lucrative developer platforms ever created if not the most and they've already got the business models besides the besides the in-app purchase issues besides the fact that you've got you know indie developers struggling to monetize paid applications the fact of the matter is that the really big money in the app store is made by apps like Uber and Amazon and Facebook and Google with orthogonal business models that don't really have much to do with the app store transactions in the first place. So I think that with a, a customer base and a user base like you've got on iOS and a, a mental model like you've got on iOS of I'm going to go get an app to get something done, that to me is what people still understand, what users understand. They're, they have this idea of, oh, I have Uber for I'm going to go somewhere or they have Amazon for I need some shampoo or whatever it might be, or I need Foursquare to find where to eat. And that model where you've got in your head almost a home screen installed of the apps, like a digital copy of the home screen in your working memory of, oh, okay, I need this, I go to this app. I think that that is a much more effective bridge, at least, to the voice and an assistant future than sort of free-flowing skills and atomized little tasks that can be, um, that can come from anywhere. Like I think you're seeing on Alexa. And I think that really pulling forward the app developer as the service provider and as the entity fulfilling your request is going to make it much easier for customers to understand what they're doing. It gives these businesses an incentive to build amazing conversational experiences for their particular domain and, and, and use case which I think is one of the, the common misconceptions about voice, which is that it's the tech isn't there yet. And I think the tech isn't there for general purposes, completely free form, but customers can be trained to focus what they're saying or what they're requesting on a certain vertical or on a certain domain. And that's a much more simple problem for Uber to specialize in all the different ways to talk about and express intent around going somewhere or getting a ride or you're figuring out where uh, I guess now your, your scooter is going to be. Um, Amazon can specialize obviously as they already are with Alexa on shopping and, and how to get, you know, free shipping, quick reorders, things like that. Foursquare can focus on where to find stuff. Um, and I think that, I think that this is going to be the way that Apple really combats Amazon and Google in particular in its weakness in machine learning, AI, services, cloud, they don't necessarily need to beat them at their same game. They need to use their strengths against these internet giants that that have much more experience in this space by bringing the app store to the fight and basically giving Siri backup in the form of all the apps that we use every single day rather than having Siri try to do it all itself. So I think Siri OS and whatever it's going to be called needs to essentially be open domain or arbitrary domains and developer defined intents. And I think that the ability for developers to really focus on what their, what their particular side, you know, niche in the world is unconstrained from what Apple's, I know their current domains are uh, payments or ride sharing, et cetera, is going to unleash a ton of creativity from again, the most robust developer ecosystem I think we've ever seen. And I think that it 
I, I sometimes joke that you should never bring a product to a platform fight. And I think that that's unfortunately what Apple's been doing for a few years now is they've seen Siri as a feature or almost an app on iOS as opposed to an emergent operating system or runtime or canvas for developers to really build on. So I'm hoping that Siri Kit is a stepping stone to something bigger, a full-blown OS. And I hope that Apple is going to be a bit less cautious about really nailing their own role in the customer experience and getting Siri to be as smart as it needs to be before they allow developers to take more advantage of it. Because if they keep, I think, waiting on this, the ecosystem advantages of Google and, and Amazon are going to become insurmountable. I also think that the the place that the phone is the natural starting point for voice and assistance. And I think that the Echo has shown how far we can go with a speaker in the home and the frictionlessness of being able to just say something out loud and talk to it. But the phone is the most powerful computer we've ever owned. It's with us on our person all the time. It represents us as an individual rather than in a household. And I think that that brings with it other it brings with it other sort of modality requirements. I think you should be able to text Siri by default as opposed to turning it on via an accessibility feature. The responses from Siri and from Siri applications should be able to be GUI or text or voice or some combination thereof. I know Apple has some basic UI drawing for things like confirming a payment with a button after asking Siri, you know, Venmo, etc. Um, or ride sharing, etc. I think Apple needs to probably pull in some of the uh, some of the functionality of rich notifications, frankly, where you kind of 3D press on, on one and get kind of a, a, a set of menu and set of content that you can the, the developer can use as the response from the system to the to the user. And I think that that will be a very good way for Apple to give developers all the tools to create exactly the kind of experience they're looking for. Because if, let's say, you ask Siri for, you know, hey Siri, uh, ask Uber to book me a ride to work. The First of all, there may not need to be a response at all, but the response from the system certainly doesn't need to be a full-blown voice conversation back and forth. A message, if you will, that shoots back with a, a set of options where you can confirm or, or change or, or modify your request and that's it with a GUI, I think is a much more effective experience than trying to do the whole thing over voice. So that's that's one of Apple's major advantages by owning the smartphone is that they can open up the tools so that developers can use exactly the right experience, the mix of the different, the best of, of GUI, the best of voice, the best of texting, and get it such that the customer has the exact right experience for what that particular task might be. And they don't need to open a, an app to do it. They can use the wake word. They don't need to remember. They don't need to know which apps or which skills can do something or not. They have a mental model that already exists in their mind. Uber is for going somewhere. Amazon is for buying stuff. Foursquare and Yelp are for finding places to go. Um, Bank of America is for checking my balance and getting uh, you know, fraud updates from credit cards, et cetera, mint. You've basically got the, the mental model already required for people to use it. 
already in their heads from the app world. I think what Apple needs to do is take it and port it over to the voice world, to the assistance world, and just unleash the app store on Google and Amazon rather than trying to fight it themselves. So I, I actually think that bringing it back to Amazon, that Amazon probably sees this coming. Amazon probably knows eventually Apple is going to allow for third-party assistance, essentially, on iOS. And Alexa is going to be front and center. In fact, I've predicted, and I wouldn't be surprised if this year or next year at WWDC, we see uh, Rohit Prasad, the head of uh, the head of Alexa, on stage at WWDC presenting Alexa for iOS. And I think that's really where Apple can shine, is that they can become the premier user interface, the premier form factor for that futuristic conversational voice experience without needing to be light years ahead in AI and machine learning like, like Google or, or, or even Amazon. And I think that they were first into the space. Siri was way ahead of its time when it came out. They've basically stayed in stasis for several years now, been fallen behind in terms of the way that we compare it now to Google Assistant and, and Amazon in terms of essentially what I would say are parlor tricks. Like they're not exactly useful. A lot of the things that Google Assistant is able to do better than a Siri, for example. But at least on the surface, people still do have an experience of Siri being pretty dumb and useless. And I think that the the goal or the the approach to fixing that shouldn't be Apple tries to beat Google at Google's game or beat Amazon at Amazon's game. They need to play their own game and evolve it for this new world and play to their strengths. And I think that you're going to find very willing participant in, in Amazon Alexa to access iOS customers uh, with a wake word and have Alexa and Siri be able to be friends as opposed to competitors. And I think that that's really going to be how Apple sort of jumps up a level of abstraction in this sort of digital assistant war and wins the war without firing a shot, if that makes sense. So we'll see Siri OS. That's my big and probably only thing I really care about at WWDC this week. And even the early signs of it, I think, are pretty fundamental and vital to Apple's future. Because if they don't go down this route, if they don't solve this problem, Amazon will and, and Google will continue to push things forward. I think Amazon is happy to seed the quote-unquote platform in voice to Apple if Apple can facilitate access to its customers more efficiently via Alexa on iOS. But if Apple keeps, you know, screwing up, I, I think Amazon is going to continue to need to push it in other directions, different devices in the home, an Alexa-connected smartwatch. And I honestly still don't think Amazon has ruled out going back into smartphones and, and getting, you know, you have Alexa on some of these Android devices. And, um, and obviously Google is, uh, going very, sprinting very fast towards a Google assistant differentiated Android strategy. And it doesn't matter right now. I really don't think that voice assistants and their ability to do things for you are a significant differentiator on mobile yet or in tech in general yet, but we're maybe 12 to 18 months from that really picking up. And by then, if Apple's starting then, it's going to be too late. And so they need to get out ahead of it. They need to get out of the way 
And Siri doesn't need to win with its brains. It just needs to bring the App Store with it. So I'd love to hear any comments, questions, feedback on that idea. And we'll see this week if, uh, if Apple is able to pull it off. And last, we'll, we'll end with the rant. So obviously there's been a, a bunch of horrible jokes the past few weeks on GDPR emails and memes about, you know, I don't know, some Renaissance painting saying that we've updated our privacy policy uh, and also a lot of whining and sort of really boring tropes from, from techies and people saying, oh yeah, well the regulation that always, that always, it always, uh, props up the incumbents and, and, and freezes out challengers and freezes out startups. And that's all regulation ever does. And I'm, I'm pretty sick of that kind of nihilistic bullshit trope, to be honest, because even if it's true in certain instances and in certain dimensions that, you know, a large corporation like Google and Facebook obviously has a, a compliance department that, uh, or a legal department that is able to field these GDPR issues and get out ahead of it and get in compliance cheaply and some smaller companies may be struggling with that. I think that that's the sort of short short view, the unnuanced view, because I think that in the end of the day, consumer protection matters, data security, privacy, consent, they really do matter. And I think that by making this move, the EU has raised the bar around the world already in terms of these issues. And even if it's not a clean, even if it's not elegant, even if there are second and third order consequences and, and issues to tweak and small businesses needing to come and get assistance from the government or assistance from, from third-party firms to help them navigate this. I think it's a step in, in pushing customer and consumer expectations of privacy and security forward, and we're not going to go backwards from that. And so even if now it may somewhat strengthen Google and Facebook in terms of hey, well, we're going to take a hit, but we're the biggest. And, and I think uh, relative to everybody else, we're going to have a, an easier time than this. I think in the long run, it really clamps down on these exploitative business models, these ad networks, this, this, this culture of, of, of deception, of, of strong-arming people into privacy agreements they've never read or understood, selling their data without knowing, and I think that ultimately it will increase awareness. It will increase the standards around these different things. And we may see better legislation in the future that is maybe more targeted at regulating the duopoly itself. Because though, you know, Google and Facebook, they may, be, they may come out on top of this in the sense that they have teams of lawyers and small businesses and startups don't. But I think in the long run, focusing legislation around privacy, data security, around putting the customer's interest and the consumer's interest first and making privacy a fundamental human right will ultimately affect Facebook and Google in other ways, in other fights, in other legislation. And I don't think that the fact that they are going to be okay and out of this, out of this whole GDPR thing uh, is, is a reason not to do it, is a reason to just do nothing. Because, because regulation sometimes calcifies current power structures in an industry, I don't find that to be a compelling reason not to act, not to regulate. And maybe we actually should move closer to regulating Facebook and Google more strongly as a utility and give them those monopolies, give them that type of control and that type of stability and make them pay the price in terms of putting consumers first and having 
respecting privacy and security as fundamental human rights in the internet era. So I don't buy this whining from the tech industry about GDPR and having to get everything together, get, you know, get, get their ducks in a row. I don't really buy that customers really care about getting all these privacy emails. I think people already ignore their email inbox as junk mail anyways. And I think GDPR is a, is a net good development. And I'm, I'm very excited to see how companies that don't whine, and potentially this will be a renaissance of, of European tech companies, how companies that don't whine about it and use this as a way to really put a, a privacy first mentality on their services will start to change the way that tech thinks about privacy and thinks about how what our responsibility is to provide privacy for users. And I think also it will inform and educate users and the, and the public about really taking their rights back and sort of becoming a informed consensual participant in an internet economy as opposed to what you could argue is an exploitative relationship and a, you know, which you, you might, you might, you might even call it surveillance capitalism as it's dubbed by, by some analysts. So, so that's, that's the rant and that's the show. Um, bear with me. This is my first time doing a, a whole monologue for 40 minutes on different topics. I, I hope to have a guest on next week. And I'm very interested in seeing in what happens at WWDC. Hopefully Siri OS or hints of it will come out. And uh, yeah, until then, I'll see you next week. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. Um, your, your music choice is serial killer stuff. Uh, I'm worried, worried for you. Should check that out. It's, it's pretty tough. Very unsure uh, what I'm doing here. Even more unsure why well, I just listened to a three-minute rant about your thoughts on Snapchat that I've heard for about three years now. Well. Uh, uh, that's that's all I got.